Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. More exciting news, I've recently launched Zibby's Picks book subscription service. Four times a year, so every three months, I'll send you a new fantastic book that I think you will love. So just go to zibbyowens.com, and it's actually zibbyowens.com slash swag, and sign up for a book subscription in either fiction, memoir, nonfiction slash parenting, children's book, middle grade fiction, and I'll send you just fantastic books, and it will be great. And I also have gift options available if you want to give this to another book lover in your life. So please check it out. Tell friends and start subscribing. Thanks so much to my sponsor, Libro FM. Libro FM Audiobooks lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks, including many New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you get the same audiobooks at the same price as other audiobook companies, but you're going to be part of a much different story, one that supports the community. You can even choose which local bookstore you'd like to support, which is so cool. Listeners of my podcast can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Just go to Libro.fm, ro.fm and enter code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y. With every time you listen to an audiobook, now you can be proud that you're supporting a local bookstore. And the best part is that I have my own playlist on Libro FM, which is so cool. So the books that have been on my podcast and that I'm recommending are now in my own playlist. If you go to Libro FM slash playlists, you can find it, which is so great. I am just beyond excited to be interviewing Candice Bushnell, who is the internationally best-selling author of nine books, including Sex and the City, Lipstick Jungle, The Carrie Diaries, and Four Blondes. Her latest book, called Is There Still Sex in the City, is currently in development as a TV series with Paramount already. Two of her previous books, as you all probably know, were made into popular TV shows on NBC and The CW. And Sex and the City, of course, became the show on HBO and two blockbuster feature films. She's written for many publications, including Mademoiselle, Hamptons, and The New York Observer, for which she wrote the Sex and the City column. She hosted a radio show on Sirius XM Radio. She wrote a web series starring Jenny Garth. She even does some music videos. A Connecticut native, she currently divides her time between New York and Sag Harbor. Welcome, Candace. Thanks for being on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I am thrilled to be here. It's an amazing setup here. There's an <laughs> author coming in. It's it's maybe the you know the most beautiful place I've ever been interviewed. <laughs> Thank you. Candace so. came into my apartment and has taken like 67 videos. I'm worried she's going to like, you know, put my house in the market or something. <laughs> I'm like, what is this for now? <laughs> no, but it's it's wonderful. I love the idea of the salon and all of that. Oh, thanks. So, no, it's, it's great. super fun. So I'm so psyched to have read Is There Still Sex in the City? I was a huge Sex and the City fan in every way, shape, and form. I was an extra on Sex and the City. Oh One of the episodes, I know. Now, which episode was it? Okay, so Samantha had just been diagnosed with cancer and was trying to break up with Smith Jared. They were at Lotus Nightclub. Mm-hmm. And you can see the top left corner of my forehead. So oh. if you if you pause it. You know. Right. Well, I was, an, <laughs> I was an extra in the pilot and... Again, it's like a top left corner thing, and I'm in for like two seconds. But after doing that, I thought, I mean, being an extra is, it's kind of the worst because you really, you are stuck there. But then I was an extra in the Carrie Diaries in the 70s dance scene, or it was like the 80s dance scene. And they dressed me up and they put me in a huge top hat and a like a red 
kind of, you know, maestro circus leader <laughs> jacket. And so then I was like dancing. And that actually was fun. But we had to, but they didn't actually play the music. You had to pretend dance. Oh my gosh. So that made it even more interesting. That does not sound fun to me. But it, <laughs> that was fun. Okay. So can you tell listeners a little about what Is There Still Sex in the City is about and what made you write it right now? Well, to me, it's really about a journey that I had in my 50s. And my 50s were not anything like I thought they were going to look. For one thing, I got divorced when I think I was about 53, maybe. So I was in my early 50s. I got divorced. And I suppose I'd kind of been, I just really didn't want to live in New York all the time anymore. So something was happening in my brain. Like, my brain was changing. You know, I was somebody who I never wanted to leave Manhattan. And if I left Manhattan, I was going wearing all black and heels <laughs> and, like, I was getting back to Manhattan as fast as possible. But I I just, you know, changed quite a bit. And then I I spent—I lived basically at my house in Connecticut because I have a little small country house. And I spent a lot of time alone. And I guess I was doing—I was doing the thing that you always dream about when— you're a kid and you're a writer. You know, I'm just going to live in a little cabin in the woods and I'm going to write because that's <laughs> all I need. And I'll have a little bit of food and I'll have dogs or something. And the weird thing is that if you are a writer or a particular kind of creative person, that actually is enough. You can do that. And, and I moved to an area where... People had been doing that traditionally. Arthur Miller lived up the road. And on his property was the writing shack that he built with his own hands where he wrote The Crucible. Wow. And, and you know, and he was also in, the, in that house with Marilyn Monroe. And I found that super, super inspiring. And Frank McCourt lived across the street and then Calder was up the road. So, of course, they're all dead now. But it was that kind of place where I went for walks and then I wrote whatever I wanted. And when your publisher says, now you write what or your editor says, like, write whatever you want. They do not mean that. <laughs> okay. That is a lie. They do not want you to write whatever you want. They want you to write what you want within the confines of what they want from a book. You know, it's a, you know, it's a business. And I just wasn't conforming. I just wouldn't write that commercial novel that they wanted. So that was like, yee. And then I, a lot of my girlfriends moved to Sag Harbor. And they all sort of said, you know, maybe you're going crazy up there. Because I really sp spent like three years pretty much alone. I rode horses, but I didn't date. And I really just wrote all the time. I wrote so much. And it was like during that time that I made this crazy music video. 
and wrote a you know song on Garage Band, and people are like, "What the hell's going on with her?" <laughs> and and that actually is a phase of what I would call middle age madness. It's you know at the end of menopause, I suppose, or when you've gone through menopause. I mean, the whole menopause thing, it's like, has all these freaking stages. You don't even know, like, you know, where you are, whatever. <laughs> and then after you've gone through this thing, you know, you're postmenopausal, but it should just be something like, you know, period-free or something. I don't know. But it's, I tried to look these things up, but it's, and I kept thinking, that when you, you know, as your hormones change, your brain is going to change. And so what's happening to women when the hormones change is that you're going from a brain, a reproductive brain, to a non-reproductive brain, which could mean a brain that's more about the self, in a sense, and it seemed to me that maybe because women spend most of their lives taking care of others, this is nature's way of saying, you know, I'm going to free you from those hormones that bind you so tightly to others and make you feel like, you know, because women, you, when you're in those reproductive years, you you really are second to other people. You put everybody else and their needs first. So... This was what kind of launched this idea, and I realized I'm going through something, and I, I'm I'm doing the thing that I always wanted to do, but never had permission to do, and it didn't exactly work out the way I wanted. But I ended up moving to Sag Harbor, and all of a sudden, when I felt like I was the only single person around, with the exception of a, a couple of girlfriends, I had who never married, all of a sudden I had all these friends who were single again because they were in their 50s and they were getting divorced or had gotten divorced. So it seemed like, again, there's a coming together of single women. Like there's certain times when when you really need your single women friends. And those are the times like before you're married and you have kids and after you've done the reproductive life system, which is meet, get married, partner up, whatever, have kids, raise them to a certain point, get divorced. It's like you've done the full cycle, okay? <laughs> and <laughs> what I realized was, you know, there are still people who they still want to do the cycle again. They still, even though they did it, they had it all. And it didn't work out, yet people still want to go back and do that again. And that I found fascinating. So I really started taking a look around at, and there were all of these single women coming through Sag Harbor because there were a couple of women there who had houses and then they have friends and then the friends of the friends come. And, and I realized everybody was going through something that was very similar, which I call middle-age madness. And it's a confluence of events. And there's a lot of loss, and there are a lot of socks to the jaw. Like, whoa, didn't see that one coming. Boom. And then you get up again, and you're like, I think I'm going to be okay. And then boom. 
but it's, you know, there's menopause, there's divorce, there's children leaving the nest, there's, you know, usually like the death of a parent. It's just that statistically, that's how it's going to work out. And, you know, it's a time when somebody's maybe going to get sick. And then it's also a time where if you have gotten divorced, it's going to be a time in your life, or even if you're not, money becomes important in a way that it wasn't before. Because now you are thinking about retirement and you can see that future. And and so that's something that people have to deal with in a way that they haven't dealt with. And all these come, you know, and then there's this, if you're divorced, chances are you're going to be moving. So if you look at the overall picture, you have life's biggest stressors, which are divorce, death, and moving, on top of about four other major stressors. And then, and you have women who are, in a sense, in a transitional period. And so that was really what I wrote about. And I felt like I didn't really get through this middle-age madness period until I turned 60. And I see so many of my friends going through it too. And it's funny, there also is a lot of pain there because you have to, you know, the death of a parent or the end of a marriage or children leaving home and therefore leaving a void in time and energy, it causes you to look at yourself and who you are, what is your value, what is your worth. And you're also confronted if you have to go out there and support yourself again what is your value and what is your worth in the world? Now you find it's very different than it was when you were 20 or even 30. Now in your 50s, your value in the world is greatly changed. So that's what it's about. Wow, that was a great answer. You can go home now. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Don't leave. That's awesome. You said something, where did you say? You said something about having a middle life crisis when you're in your 40s is just really dumb. Yes, so. because I was, you know, it's so funny because I look back on, I, when I look at all of my books, I see exactly where I was in life. I was writing something, I was actually writing pretty much the same thing as Sex in the City when I was in my 20s in New York, and I wrote for women's magazines. And it was a good gig because you got paid $2,500. It was 2,500 words, and you had a month to write a 2,500-word piece. And I cannot tell you why, but it took every single day of that month. I don't know. I, I don't know. And then at one point, I worked at Self Magazine, and there were four staff writers. And it was like a big deal job, and we were paid really well. I think we made 30000 a year. But we had 
the writing had to be so precise. And we were writing about mascara. <laughs> and you would hand your copy in, and if you got your copy back with just a couple of changes, you'd be like, oh, phew. And then if you had, like, all these sentences or, you know, looks like you didn't quite get the point. Try again. It was horrifying. It was like the walk of shame, you know. But I was writing about women in their 20s in New York and the and all of, you know, it was really about dating. And that was a super interesting time because it was the first time where women in on mass, although it happened in the 1920s, moved out of the home and into the workplace. And all of a sudden, there are all these women in the workplace where there weren't before, and the male system has to figure out how to deal with them. And, you know, we had all kinds of, you know, the office romance. You know, it was also the time of sexual freedom. So we were all, you were allowed to have premarital sex for the first time. I mean, the big O was on the cover of Cosmopolitan, and it was revolutionary, the idea that a woman could have an orgasm. And so I was writing about all of that. And then in the 90s, it really was the single woman who wasn't still supposed to be single. And that was me. That was Carrie Bradshaw. Why are we still single? Somebody promised us that if we worked hard and had a career and looked good and that we were smart and in control of our lives because that's what we were supposed to do, right? That we'd get this great guy. No. <laughs> and then I, I, one of my favorite books is Trading Up, which is about, I mean, the woman is a borderline narcissistic personality, at least in Manhattan, which was something that was great. And then one-fifth was, I thought about being middle-aged. This is a long and super boring answer to your Not question. Not at all. Oh my, honestly, I could just sit here and watch you talk all day. I'm like, I should be filming this. You, you were like, you should have your own like stand-up comedy show. <laughs> but so, um, there are no boring answers you could come up with. But when I wrote one-fifth, I was in my 40s, and I was married, and that book is about a couple, like, in the lassitude of, you know, when you're in your 40s, you think you are middle-aged. And you're going to have a certain kind of middle-aged crisis that has to do with what that's really about is saying no to the man. You know, that's why only men had middle-aged crisis, because, you know, it was about railing against, you know, the society restrictions of the office and having to be buttoned up and having to get home every day and have those responsibilities. That's, it was about men breaking out of that. And of course, women weren't allowed to have one. But now so many people are, you're in the beginning of your reproductive life cycle. I mean, people in their 40s, they're just starting to have kids. Or, you know, their kids are 10. All right, but it's, you know, there's so much involved in having kids these days and having a family and so many obligations and so many things to do that it seems like you don't have a lot of time to say, and what I do is, 
Am I doing the right thing? Am I? It's like, you don't have time to ask if you're doing the right thing. You got to do, do, do. So that's the long answer. I can relate to that. That's you are it. too busy when you can stop and look at it all or you're forced to stop and look at it all. Some people go, ah. So then what happens, like give me the preview, and I read it all in your book, but in your 50s then, when it comes to your divorced, tell me then about like dating in your 50s again. Like what happens, how does that look versus when you were younger? Well, I think one of the interesting things is that in some ways it's very similar to kind of being a virgin again. Because, you know, if you think about it, if, you know, Usually when people get divorced, they haven't, you know, they're not having sex like, oh, a week before they get divorced. These are usually people who, mm, there hasn't been sex there for a while. So they haven't had sex for a while. They probably haven't dated for 20 years. That's a real possibility. Right. And so much has changed in those 20 years. And... You know, all of the things that you're expected to do, like, you know, with dating in your 20s, like, oh, you're going to take your clothes off in front of strangers. Da, da, da. Yeah, that's great when you're in your 20s. When you're in your 50s, you're like, I've got to take my clothes off in front of strangers. Like, <laughs> how am I going to do this? <laughs> what are they going to look like? <laughs> uh, you, you, can I kiss someone my age? I love how in, in the book you have one of your friends is saying, well, can I date him? He's 64 years old. Isn't that like too old? And you're like, well, how old are you? I mean, I know. <laughs> it's, yes. And it's, and there's so much sort of self-ageism in the sense that it's exactly what you said. If When I read somebody 60 or 64, I think some old person. And then I remember I'm 60. And and it doesn't feel old. And it didn't feel old to that person either, even though we have so much ageism. But it's, you know, it's also for people, I mean, I think it's disheartening because I, I'm, I think that dating isn't great for anybody of any age now. I don't see 20-something women, they're not coming up to me and saying, Candace, dating's never been better. <laughs> they're saying dating's never been worse, and what's a date, and have you ever gone on a real date? Your chapter on Tinder was so great. I mean, after experiencing the whole thing, like, what's your main takeaway? Because you started the whole chapter thinking that, like, everybody told you Tinder was terrible. <laughs> Yes. And, you know, weirdly, the way it ends with it's really just a way to get Instagram followers is, <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. Like, I think at the end of the day, that's what it is. And I should probably go back up on Tinder and really update my photos, et cetera, because I feel like I need more Instagram followers. I could not believe in the book when you said you used your real name and on Tinder and people were like, are you the real Candace Special? And you're like, yep, that's me. I'm like, oh, I cannot believe she but, did that. But you know what? Well, first of all, I didn't know how to fake my name. <laughs> and I don't know. I just, I, for some reason, I couldn't fake my name. I had to use my real name. So I did. 
And, you know, it was fun. And I, like, people were very nice to me on Tinder. I mean, they were sweet. But everybody else had so, has so many other bad experiences. I mean, I wasn't going on there as an anonymous kind of person. But I do, you know, it really, look, the bottom line with Tinder and, you know, I think maybe dating apps like Match, they really do want you to find a match because so many people say they've met somebody on Match. Right. But something like Tinder, it's a money-making algorithm designed by men to play into, you know, the most base instincts of of the, you know, male, hormonally-driven person. And that's really what it's about. It's about making money and keeping people on there. And it seems to hurt people's souls who are on it. I mean, that to me was what struck me was how, I mean, they seemed sad, which makes sense because there's so much disappointment. It's like, I guess it's a casting call, really, at the end of the day, when I think back, because I used to go to go on casting calls when I first moved to New York, and they were so awful, and I felt so bad. I said to myself, I'm giving you permission to never have to do that again in your life. (laughs) You know, to never have to stand in line in a casting call and be judged, it's it's harsh, you know? And you're there with all the other girls and everybody's like, you know, you know, they'll reject you if you don't have the right eyelashes. We're like, I know. (laughs) So it's that kind of, you know, and then there are people on it for all different kinds of reasons. So on balance, do you think social media and the introduction of it since like the Sex in the City days versus where we are today, like how have you found it? To help, to hurt? I mean, you're obviously an Instagram Yes, junkie. I mean, there's a, you know, there's and a- And this was, by the way, a question I wanted to ask, but also from Jennifer Englade Dahlberg, who's an author who wanted me to ask it. So just a shout out to her. Hello, shout out. I mean, one of the things that I always wanted to do when I was a kid was I, like, my sisters and I did, like, little radio plays, and I used to do, I used to make little movies when I was a teenager. And I studied a little bit of filmmaking, and I used to do it with the, you know, it was, it had the prongs and the sprongs, and you had to, like, cut it with a machine. And I was, like, really into making these little movies, but then I just, I never really did it again. And so when Instagram started, I loved the visual aspect of it. Like when it first started, it seemed like it was super fun and great because they had the weird filters and you could do these different things. And I started looking at the world much more visually and I really liked it. Mm -hmm. But now it seems like it's, And then, so I really like making the little movies and using it creatively, you know. And then, of course, I want, like, a zillion more followers. (laughs) All right, a zillion more. Do you have a goal? You know, I don't. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'd try to get 50,000. I think you could do that. No, I'm not. They won't verify me. I'm not even (laughs) verified. That's how messed up this whole thing is. That is messed up. That's crazy. Did you apply? I did. And they said no? That's insane. Try no, they again. didn't say no. They just haven't they haven't done it yet. Okay. 
Well, you have to apply again if it doesn't happen yet. You have to. There's the, yes, I am. I'm tell- I mean, that's Hello, crazy. Hello, someone that's from crazy. Instagram. Are you listening? <laughs> so your book, and I know we're almost out of time here. Your book ended on an emotional, it was a really emotional ending to your book. And sort of an yes. unexpected level of emotion that, I, you know, my heart was like, anyway. Well, that's good. Because, I mean, the weird, the thing about this book, and we're calling it autofiction, is... I, like, the real things happened while I was writing this book. My father died while I was writing this book. And then my friend died. And I was almost at the end of the book. I mean, it, that part about, like, sh- her and her MMB, mm-hmm. they were going to get married. And then— Well, don't, so, give, don't give it away. Right. <laughs> so that was— Do you feel like— there's some sort of closure. Like, do you feel like writing the book helped, like, sort of cap off your 50s or, like, now you're— I, You know what? I really do. And I feel like I needed to do that. I mean, there's so many questions of, like, moving forward and how do you want to move forward and where do you want to move forward and, like, what do I want to do, you know, with—I mean, it, this is all about work stuff, by the way. Like, I never even— you know, moving forward to me is just about, like, work. You know, do I want to try to write a Broadway musical? Hmm. Yes, I do, you know. That's cool. Do I want to you know, do a bunch of other stuff? Yes. So that's that's amazing. That's great. Okay, and last question. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors out there? Read a lot. I mean, look, the reality is that if you're going to be a writer, you will be a writer. The trick to being a writer is figuring out how to be a writer. And that is an individual path. Everybody, and also, you know, the question is what kind of writer? Like, I always wanted to be a writer like F. Scott Fitzgerald. You know, that was, but it doesn't make sense to want to be that kind of writer anymore because nobody writes those books anymore and people don't really read those books about society. And, but that's still what I write about, you know, but it's like knowing what kind of writer you want to be. At the beginning, though, you know, like writing, it's like playing an instrument. When, like, let's say you want to play the violin. The first thing you do is you play lots of other pieces. And I think as a writer, you try on different styles. That's what I did. You know, it's like, you know, you try to write like Hemingway. And then you try to write like, I don't know, Edith Wharton. And, you know, it's part of that is it's it's an exploration of finding your voice and your point of view. It's more than words on the page. You kind of have to see the world in a certain way that nobody else sees it. And that's something that only the writer as the individual can figure out on their own. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And, but I do feel that, you know, people who are meant to be writers, they, you, you find the way in. Maybe you do a blog. Maybe you do this, do that. But, you know, in the end, it's about getting people to read your stuff. That's the bottom line. So, you know, I mean, listen, I see people writing things on Instagram that are fantastic. So, I mean, you know, it's just, it's just doing it. 
doing it and putting it out there and keep knocking on the doors. I love that. Thank you so much for oh, thank you. this entertainment and all this extra information about the book and, and yourself. And thanks for coming on the show. This is so much fun. Oh, good. <laughs> thanks again to my sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Zibby Owens and my new podcast at Kids Do Have Time to Read. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com. 